Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 180, Artemis Mission Management. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. Humans are returning to the moon in a sustainable way through the Artemis program. Getting the boots of the first woman and the next man on the lunar surface will take a large, integrated team and a lot of intricate planning. There will be an uncrewed test flight first to demonstrate the capabilities of the Space Launch System rocket and the Orion Deep Space Capsule. Then a test flight with humans on board that will break a number of previous spaceflight records will follow. Going into this detailed landscape of the management of future Artemis missions and the mission profile of some of these upcoming Artemis missions is Mike Serafin, Artemis Mission Manager. As the mission manager, it is Mike's job to chair the mission management team that brings together all of the critical function areas of an Artemis mission and analyzes and accepts the risks. So let's get right into it. Artemis Mission Management with Mike Serafin. Enjoy. Mike Serafin, thanks for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here to talk about these exciting Artemis missions we have ahead of us. Yeah, right. Returning to the moon. Not uh, not a bad thing to be a part of. How does it feel to be... I mean, that's quite a title, Mike, is is Artemis Mission Manager. That's. Uh, it sounds like you're kind of in charge of the... leading the charge here for, for organizing what will be a moon mission. Yeah, so effectively the role is uh, the top decision authority when it comes to executing the mission. Uh, we've got an amazing team of engineers off uh, designing and building and testing the hardware right now, but when it's ready to fly, it uh, the ball passes to the operations team and then to uh, myself as the mission manager. Uh, and, it's, and it's up to us to uh, execute the mission and accomplish these agency goals and objectives that we've set. And you're no stranger to executing the mission, right? You've been a part of the shuttle program, the International Space Station program. You've ever, you've even been um, part of the Orion program in in the operations world. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your background and, and some of your experience in in all of these different programs? Yes. So you're you're right in that I lived in the uh, operations realm for 22 of my 27 years in the, in my NASA career. Um, I supported initially as a uh, flight controller. My call sign was GNC, which was Guidance, Nav, and Control, and I did that for a decade in the shuttle program, supporting all phases of flight, uh, launch, uh, orbit, rendezvous docking. Uh, we serviced the Hubble Space Telescope entry, and uh, we uh, flew missions to the Mir Space Station and then did the early um, International Space Station assembly missions. And uh, around that time, I was looking for something different for some additional growth opportunities. And uh, they opened uh, a uh, opportunity up to be a flight director. And I, I applied in late 2004 and was selected, fortunately selected, um, with an amazing group of uh, flight directors in 2005. And, uh, you know, it, it, that group of nine is, is just a 
a stellar bunch of folks to be a part of, and uh, it was a real privilege to to be alongside um, that that group of uh, fellow flight directors, and then to learn the ropes as a flight director, and then I got to uh, support uh, a dozen missions as a space shuttle flight director for those I was the lead for. Um, as well as International Space Station missions and then Orion's maiden flight test called Exploration Flight Test 1. So this uh, Artemis 1 will be my 65th mission, um, and uh, I very much look forward to that. <laughs> Mike, you said your, your 65th mission. That's, uh, that's quite a number of... Uh, quite, an, quite an experience, quite a list of missions under your belt. Um, how do you feel? Do you feel like you're ready for this next phase of flight, just given everything that you've, you've done? I mean, you, you just went over, like, all this, all the different programs. Um, you think you're ready for this next challenge? And, and you already talked about the teams that are a part of it, but, uh, but your thoughts about just this upcoming era that we're in, moon missions? I, I would say a qualified yes. <laughs> <laughs> We've we've got we've got uh, probably ten thousand things we've got to get ready between now and uh, Artemis One mission, and we've got an amazing team that we work together with at the Kennedy Space Center, the Marshall Space Flight Center, and the Johnson Space Center to all to pull it together for the rocket, the spacecraft, the ground systems, the launch team, the recovery team, the flight team, and you know we have a a, a march. A marathon ahead of us uh, to get to the flight readiness review, and that's that's when we'll be ready to fly. Uh, we still have some training in front of us. We still have some uh, decisions to make as it pertains to flight readiness. Uh, and and I've been on this roller coaster a number of times in the past, and and I know what it feels like. And and it feels like we're on the right the right path, the right trajectory right now. So. I, I, again, that's a qualified yes. <laughs> well, let's let's kind of explore when you talk about flight readiness, when you talk about some of the upcoming milestones. That's what we're really going to be discussing in depth today is mission management. Just just what is that? There's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes to make a mission, uh, to prepare for a mission and to eventually execute a mission. So can you tell us a little bit about what's going on when it comes to mission management and how even pulling some examples from your previous experience with shuttle with ISS, just more about um, mission management. Yes, so mission management is really the process of taking a rocket and a spacecraft that has limitations and, and known system capabilities and applying it to a, a purpose. Uh, so we have the Space Launch System rocket, uh, the Orion spacecraft, and we are um, at the agency level being asked to execute a, a series of flight tests to return humans to the moon and progressively uh, get, get more complicated uh, objectives accomplished and to buy down risk as we move forward in that manifest. So, you know, mission management is the process of determining what objectives we can achieve with reasonable risk that will lead us to uh, return a humans on the surface of the moon and, uh, you know, we've got a series of flight tests, Artemis 1, an uncrewed flight test, Artemis 2, a crewed flight test, and then Artemis 3, which is our goal to return humans to the moon. As part of that, you kind of break it down into smaller pieces. You look at discrete flight phases and the objectives you want to achieve within those flight phases. And then you assess kind of the overall risk profile. And then uh, the implementation of it by our operations teams, whether it's our launch 
and ground operations and recovery team led by the exploration ground systems at, at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, or our flight operations team led out of the Mission Control Center in Houston. Uh, we look at you know all the the mission end to end, and then uh, roll that up and and work with the the operations teams to ensure that they have the requirements end to end, and then uh, turn it over to them, give them the keys when it's time to go fly. I used to be one of those folks. And um, now being on the customer side of that, as opposed to the as opposed to the operations agent side of it, I have a full appreciation and a healthy understanding of some of the challenges and what it's like to be in that in that chair. So you know, it's all about having clarity in expectations and clearly communicating what it is that we want to achieve, and and in return, understanding what risk we're about to to uh, to bite off. And you've kind of alluded to just you know who who in this in this uh, process is analyzing that risk and contributing to making sure that we are ready to go for the operations. You talked about there's the operations side, there's the SLS, there's the Orion, there's there's ground systems, there's I guess the, there's a lot of players here that have to sit down um, and and talk about. Uh, all of these different aspects of a mission before you, like you said, you're re- uh, ready to hand over those keys. Right. So it's it's holistically looking at the mission and then looking at the mission within the context of the manifest so that uh, you do have that, that bigger picture risk profile. It's not tactical. It is, it is more of a strategic view of, um, of, of the mission. Is there is it does it look a lot like what we currently do for international space station missions, or maybe because we're talking about the moon here, uh, maybe there's a few more players involved. I would say it's just different. You know, when you look at the the different models that are out there for a mission management team, um, I'll I'll take the space shuttle program for example. That was a NASA owned NASA led program with a uh, prime contractor that worked with that that mission management team. And while it was distributed across multiple NASA centers, the Johnson Space Center, the the Marshall Space Flight Center, the Kennedy Space Center, it it was a a fairly discreet and a fairly um, compartmentalized uh, government-led effort. When you look at the International Space Station model, it it is very different. All 16 international partners are represented on that mission management team. Um, our neighbors to the north, our friends at the Canadian Space Agency, uh, the European Space Agency, the Japanese Exploration Agency, our, our Russian colleagues, and and our NASA team and our prime contractor on that team. Um, and that that's largely an artifact of the international collaboration and, and the low Earth orbit mission. And then occasionally, Commercial partners enter the equation there as, as part of the, uh, the the International Space Station mission management team, and what we have for Artemis is is leveraging that experience, but it is focused around our our programmatic construct and the Space Launch System rocket being led out of the Marshall Space Flight Center with a handful of prime contractors, and they're on the the mission management team, and then the Orion program out of the Johnson Space Center in Houston with a prime contractor, and then the exploration ground systems um, out, of, out of the Kennedy Space Center with a prime contractor. And then we have a system of checks and balances with our technical authorities, which which all uh, mission management teams have. So it, it's tailored to what we need 
and it's really there to look for um, uh, what decisions need to be made and to have key gates in place and then to have a process that allows you to communicate when a decision is necessary and to make an informed decision with the right parties involved. So it's it's a little bit different, but its function is very similar to what we've had in the past. So then what's your role as the mission manager? People are, are presenting a lot of information from their own respective areas towards you. Is it you making the decisions? Is it you? Is it you accepting that risk? What's your role in all of this? Yes, there is one decisional authority, and that's the chair of the of the mission management team, and that is me as the mission manager. So I work in close collaboration with our design centers, our engineering technical authorities, our safety and mission assurance teams, and our operations agents to make sure that. When it comes to either a decision gate or a um, a, a risk acceptance um, decision, that that we've got the right players involved, that we understand and can ask the right questions before we move forward. And you know, sometimes we may decide to knock it off and and come home early or to scrub the launch. And it, there may be other days when we decide to press ahead and accept the risk. So it. It really comes down to a high level of trust, having efficient communication, and and knowing who has the information is is all part of that process. And it's not just that one that everybody thinks about is launch, right? That's that's when I think when you think about a mission, that's you always think about the launch teams getting ready for launch. Uh, but there's more to this. There's there's mission phases. There's mission teams. So. Let's kind of dive deeper into that, the breakdown of a mission management. You know, what are all these different phases that we're, that we're looking at and that you're, you're heading up as the mission manager? Right. So, again, I, I look across the holistic mission. So there's really a handful of discrete kind of, if everything's normal, decision gates. And the first one is our launch readiness review at two days prior to launch. And that enables us to set up for a specific launch window on a specific day and, and, and attempt to get off the ground. Um, so that's, uh, again, at launch minus two days. And then we have our, our tanking decision. Do we load the rocket with cryogenic fuel, both the core stage and the upper stage, and, and put over 700,000 gallons of liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen on this thing? And, and we assess the weather, we assess the uh, range readiness and the, the health of the, of the rocket and the spacecraft, as well as the, the readiness of the overall team and the ground system. So, so that's our tanking decision. And then when we get down to T-minus 10 minutes, that's kind of the, the final commit decision from a mission management team standpoint. Uh, there's a built-in uh, hold at T-minus 10 minutes. And I'll pull all of the elements, the rocket, the spacecraft, the ground teams, our operations agents, our technical authorities, and assuming everybody's go and we understand the, the risk in front of us, we will commit to not only terminal countdown and launch the rocket, but also uh, orbit the Earth and send it on its way to the moon through the translunar injection maneuver. That's, that's quite a bit of risk to proceeding at the T-minus 10-minute hold. And then there's another decision gate. Do we enter orbit about the moon? And I'll talk a little bit more uh, about the distant retrograde orbit, but 
that is a two-maneuver sequence that commits you to a non-Earth return trajectory. And you want to make sure that you have a healthy spacecraft before you do that. So we've got a decision gate there. And then when we exit the distant retrograde orbit, we're going to commit to returning to the Earth a quarter, from a quarter million miles away, like a four-day-long journey, and position a recovery ship out there to, to receive the spacecraft after it splashes down in the ocean. And then uh, for crewed flights, bring our crew home. So, you know, those are the big decision gates if everything's normal. Uh, and then if something rears its head, if, if we have unforeseen events, that's where the mission management team really earns its pay. So when you're talking about decision gates, my assumption is, you know, everybody's getting together and they're going over these different milestones, making sure everything is set for, for that particular part of the mission, whether it's pre-launch, whether it's pre-lunar um, injection burn, uh, whatever it is. Um, but in order to get to that point, how are you analyzing the information? Everybody, I guess, breaks off, goes to their respective rooms, teams, gets the information that they need. Um, how are you kind of following along the mission to make sure that when you get to that point where you're that decision gate, you can say confidently, yes, my, my part is ready uh, for that next phase of flight? In large part, those are planned prior to the mission and agreed on with our, our lead operations team. So our launch operations team out of the firing room at the Kennedy Space Center or with our flight operations team out of Mission Control in Houston or our recovery team on the ship uh, out in the Pacific Ocean. We, we pre-plan those and assuming we are, you know, per the script, it's essentially a green light condition where you just continue on, uh, but we do spend that time to assess it, and we pull the team together, and we, we talk about, you know, how's the team doing, how, how's the vehicle doing, how is the ground infrastructure doing, and, you know, assuming we meet our, our minimum criteria to continue through things like launch commit criteria, through flight rules, through recovery decision criteria that I was a part of in making those decisions before we ever flew hmm. and, and delegating that authority to our operations agents you know, we we stay on plan. But if there's something unexpected, then we either call an emergency mission management team meeting, which is fairly rare. It does happen, but it's fairly rare. Um, or we we meet at the next planned interval and address whatever issue there. And, and time is of the essence, right? And we rely on our operations agents to tell us when do they need the decision. And, uh, you know, an example is if we just committed uh, to the translunar injection maneuver, and we're on our way to the moon, we've got another four days before we need to decide whether we enter the, the orbit about the moon. So I don't need to hold an emergency meeting to make that decision. Uh, but if it happens, you know, six hours, if we have a problem with our propulsion system six hours before we're about to enter orbit about the moon, we're going we're gonna to get together quick and talk about that <laughs> one. So it, we're, we're relying on our operations teams to to say, here's when I needed a decision. And if it's outside of what we've agreed to pre-flight, and I was a part of that process pre-flight, then then we, we have that foundation that we can work from and we can communicate quickly. I think a, a big piece of the puzzle that people, I think, often don't think about is is whenever you get to this point where you're, you're looking at all these checkpoints and running the mission during the mission, um, there has been a significant amount of work 
ahead of time to think about all of these different phases of flight. And as you said, Mike, write, basically write down, um, you know, what the goes and no goes. So you, you, I guess all the teams have been deeply analyzing the operations of a mission to the moon, of the, some of the upcoming Artemis missions. And uh, writing down on paper, hey, this is what we will and will not accept at these different phases of flight. So there's been a lot of work ahead of time. That's exactly right. It's the planning prepares you. It prepares the team. It sets expectations. And then you work from that framework. And you cannot possibly imagine every single scenario that could go wrong. But what you can do is, uh, is prepare for the likely ones. And then to have a strategy in place as to how you're going to manage it for the unlikely ones or the unforeseen ones. So let's zoom in on um, some of the upcoming Artemis missions um, and really take a deep dive into really what we can expect whenever and go through that mission profile uh, of some of these upcoming Artemis missions to really understand these points that you're sitting down and saying, hey, this is... um, this is a go no go point. These are the risks we're going to accept. First, pulling back though, before we get into the details of the mission profile and just understanding the objectives. What exactly are we doing? Uh, let's let's focus on the first one, Artemis One. This is a a test flight, and it's and it's an uncrewed test flight, so there's no astronauts on board. What are we trying to learn from this first Artemis mission? Yeah, we have four primary objectives on Artemis One. Uh, the first one is is to test the heat shield at lunar reentry conditions. The second one is to demonstrate the flight vehicle in the flight environment. The third is to simply recover the spacecraft. And the last is what I like to call bonus objectives, but there's there's a whole host of objectives there that um, are, are important, we would love to accomplish, but do not uh, materially impact our ability to fly crew on the very next mission. Those first three, though, are important to flying and enabling our astronauts to fly on Artemis II. So Artemis I objectives, if you break them down a little bit further, demonstrate the heat shield at lunar reentry conditions. When we come back from low Earth orbit, we're coming back at Mach 25 or, or 17,500 miles an hour. But when we come back from the moon, we're coming back at Mach 32 or 24,500 miles an hour. It's a lot faster. and from an engineering standpoint, the, the heat rate and heat load is it's asymptotic. It's, it's far higher than what we experience when we come back uh, from, from the International Space Station. So we want to make sure that our heat shield is going to protect our astronauts and protect the, uh, the health of the spacecraft when it comes back from a quarter million miles away from the moon and hits the Earth's atmosphere. And it's a brand new heat shield design and there's no way to test it completely on the ground. So we really have to demonstrate it in the flight environment. We've done what we can on the ground, but there's no arc jet or aerodynamic or aerothermal test facility here on Earth that is capable of of replicating the conditions that we're going to see at at that speed and and under those conditions. So, So getting that number one priority puts us on a great path to fly crew on Artemis II. Demonstrating the spacecraft in the flight environment shows that we can fly Orion out into deep space in the micrometeoroid and orbital debris environment 
in the high radiation environment where you're you're outside of the Earth's magnetic field and, and you don't have the protection that it affords like we do in low Earth orbit. It also demonstrates our ability to fly above things like the tracking and data relay satellites that are used for low Earth orbit and terrestrial communications. It also demonstrates our ability to navigate in deep space without use of the global positioning satellites that, that a lot of low Earth orbit and terrestrial users use. And then we're also exposed to the deep space thermal environment, which is far colder than it is in low Earth orbit, where you get a little bit of radiant heating from the Earth by itself. So demonstrating the Orion spacecraft in that deep space environment, it, it helps us understand all of the testing that we've done on the ground, all the modeling on the ground, how accurate is it, how, how much uncertainty do we have, and can we buy down some of that uncertainty. Number three objective is retrieve the spacecraft. By retrieving it, we physically get the spacecraft back. We can look at and touch the heat shield and see if there were hot spots or areas of erosion during, during uh, reentry or heating. We can recover all the flight instrumentation that's recorded on board and the imagery that's recorded on board. And that takes into account that we're going to have a blackout period of about three minutes during reentry when, when we come in through peak heating, which is one of our primary objectives. We cannot receive the telemetry from the spacecraft during peak heating, so it's recorded on board. And by retrieving the spacecraft, we can have access to that information and validate the heat shield performance through, through uh, instruments that are buried in the base heat shield. We can also refly the avionics. These are, these are precision avionics. They're radiation-tolerant uh, avionics. We can refly those on future missions as a cost savings, and then we can also reuse the capsule for structural testing on the ground. So, the, so there's significant cost savings to the program by retrieving the spacecraft in addition to getting the engineering data. And then priority four is what I call bonus objectives again, which is conduct payload operations. We have technology payloads. We have biological experiments that are going to help us understand the deep space radiation environment and model it before we put astronauts on board. We're going to deploy CubeSats, 13 of them total, from the Space Launch System rocket, each on their own science or technology mission. And then we're going to do things like send back imagery for just the consumption by the general public. And we're going to, we're going to have pictures of Orion with the moon in the, in the background. And, and our ability to reach the public and, and share the mission as we fly it is, is a priority. It's important to us. And, and we've got a lot of cameras on this mission, and that's part of our uh, bonus objectives. We'll, we will share as much of that as we can. So, so those are the four things we intend to accomplish on, on Artemis One, and it's a lot, but it also puts us on a great path to flying our, our crew of four astronauts on Artemis Two. I love that breakdown, Mike. I mean, it makes the way you broke it down and 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 structured that it it just makes a lot of sense. You know, before you put astronauts on a vehicle, you got to make sure these things are accomplished. And then the bonus or objectives are are nice too. I wonder what we can pull or what we have pulled from uh, because you were the lead flight director for um, EFT one Exploration Flight Test one. And it did accomplish some objectives like, you know, passing through the atmosphere with a heat shield. And it did, it did go into space, not into a lunar orbit, but it did go pretty deep. Um, what were some of those things that we learned from uh, EFT-1 back in 2014 
that we can bring, or that, that we are bringing to this first Artemis mission? We learned a lot from from uh, Exploration Flight Test 1, and it, it included what are the hard-to-manufacture piece parts on board the spacecraft, and which ones do we, we really need to stay in front of from a production standpoint so that we can have a steady cadence of missions to come. Uh, in flight, we learned about how the vehicle operates in the flight environment, not to the extent that I just described for Artemis One, because we didn't go uh, to deep space or about the moon. It was it was a four and a half hour flight test, mm. but we came back at a speed higher than low Earth orbit, and we tested the heat shield. We tested the structure. We figured out how to make it lighter so that we could carry other things uh, it, it, into into deep space rather than just pure structure of the spacecraft. We also figured out that the uh, separation mechanisms, and there's a number of them to to deploy the parachutes and to separate from the launch vehicle, that our engineering was good, that our design was good, and that we could focus our efforts in, in other higher risk areas. Uh, and, and it really, um, <laughs> the, the one thing that really strikes me about EFT-1 was how much thirst there was for exactly what we did on that flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 mission had such an overwhelming positive response by the general public, uh, both nationally and internationally, that, that I, I just frankly underestimated it. Um, I remember uh, after uh, we flew the flight, looking at all the news articles and, and you know, every major media outlet, it was front page news including overseas. And the one that strikes me still to this day was it was front page, page news for Al Jazeera. So it, it shows that folks around the world pay attention to what we do in the United States and that we are leaders and other people do care about what we're doing. And, and that, that, was, that was a key moment for me learning because maybe, maybe I had taken it for granted a little bit uh, it, with the frequency that we fly the International Space Station missions and with the frequency that we flew the space shuttle. Um, maybe I was a little bit too close to it, but but that one, it, it really struck me because it was a new program and it was so well received and, and we hadn't flown for, for a while. That's so so important, and so so Mike, let's get let's get folks ready and, and excited for this next generation. Let's dive into um, let's dive into Artemis One. You talked about the mission objectives. Um, let's talk about the mission itself. What exactly is going to happen, um, and what what can folks expect to see uh, whenever this thing uh, takes off? Yeah, end to end, uh, the mission is going to be anywhere between 25 and 42 days uh, in duration. Uh, we'll have a we'll have a pre-launch phase where we'll we'll power up the uh, the rocket and the spacecraft, and our launch operations team, led by our our launch director Charlie Blackwell Thompson, will uh, fuel the rocket, and we'll load over 700,000 gallons of of cryogenic hydrogen and oxygen into the rocket, and then we'll come up to that key decision point at T-minus 10 minutes, and we'll go through terminal count, and we will watch a 322-foot-tall rocket put out 8.8 million pounds of thrust uh, from the Kennedy Space Center. 
and and go skyward, and uh, it'll be it'll be impressive. I mean, I, I I I've seen a couple of shuttle launches, and shuttles had the solid rocket boosters. Uh, we have similar solid rocket boosters, but they're twenty five percent more powerful, and and those are the ones that you really really feel if you're standing there in person. You feel the thump in your chest. You can hear the crackle of the rocket. Um, and we also have the four RS-25 engines on this thing, and each engine will put out over half a million pounds of thrust, in addition to the uh, over six million pounds of thrust put out by the, the two solid rocket boosters. So it, it'll be an impressive show. Uh, we'll get to, uh, to orbit, and on the first orbit, the rocket uh, will commit Orion to a lunar trajectory at the translunar injection maneuver. Uh, the, the TLI maneuver will last 20 minutes, and uh, it'll increase the spacecraft's velocity enough that it, it will uh, no longer be under the, the primary influence of the, of the Earth's gravity <laughs> and send us on the, on the way to the moon. And we'll arrive uh, four to five days later. It's kind of day, day of launch dependent. And then we will uh, come up on another decision gate. Do we enter the, that distant retrograde orbit about the moon? And if we do, we'll conduct a two-maneuver sequence. And that two-maneuver sequence, the first one uses uh, lunar gravity to slingshot us uh, in combination with the uh, Orion main engine by the, by the moon. And we'll be just 62 miles from the surface of the moon on the far side of the moon. So what that means is we're not going to be able to see the maneuver when it executes, when, when the, the Orion main engine fires up. Hmm. It'll all be pre-programmed, and we'll know whether we were successful or not when, when the spacecraft comes around the far side of the moon. And after it executes, we'll essentially set ourselves up to enter this distant retrograde orbit with a second firing of the uh, Orion main engine. And then we'll be in the coast for you know a week and a half, two weeks, depending on the mission day that we launch. We'll coast about the moon 37,000 nautical miles from the surface of the moon, which is a quarter million miles from Earth. So we'll be probably 270,000 miles, 275,000 miles from Earth at the farthest point. And when we get to that farthest point, that's that's kind of the, the moment that I, that I really want to see on, on Artemis 1. Because uh, we'll have the moon in the background and this little teeny tiny dot, the Earth off in the in the in the distance, and then we'll decide when it's time to come home whether we where we deploy our recovery forces in the Pacific. We'll look at the weather, and then we'll reverse that two maneuver sequence and exit that distant retrograde orbit, and and we'll fire the first one to set up the uh, lunar gravity assist by the moon. And then the second one, again, it will go behind the moon, and we'll have a communications outage, and we'll, we'll use the lunar gravity to slingshot us on our way back to Earth. And uh, when we come acquisition a signal and, and lock back up with the communications link with the spacecraft through the deep space network, we'll be on our way back to the Earth, but we'll still be a quarter million miles away, and we'll still be about four or five days before we splash down. And that's essentially our, our deorbit burn, our... our, our we're setting up entry interface from a quarter million miles away, and that's 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 amazing precision. That that is something that we got to get right. And the entry corridor for this is it's pretty small from that far away. Uh, if you if you miss a little bit too shallow, you're going to skip off the Earth's atmosphere and head back out into space. 
And if you miss too steep, you may overstress the vehicle. So you want to hit it just right. The, the reentry corridor and the setup for that is 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 key. And we'll adjust it on that coast back from from the moon to the Earth. And then on day of entry, the European service module provided by our European partners will have done its job. We will jettison it about 20 minutes before entry interface. And now the capsule is, is free-flying by itself for the first time, and we'll turn the heat shield into the direction of the velocity vector, and then we'll get aerial capture at an altitude of 400,000 feet. And then the uh, peak heating will pick up. We'll go into a blackout period. And then when we come out of blackout, we'll get into our peak aerodynamic load, and our spacecraft will slow from Mach 32 to zero in just about 20 minutes um, after we deploy the parachutes and splash down the ocean. And, and our goal is to do it in, in eyesight of our recovery ship and, and get, the, uh, get the spacecraft home just a, a couple hours after we do a uh, test in the surface of the ocean to, to figure out how much heat soaked back into the structure of the spacecraft. So we've got a lot of objectives. It is going to be a challenging mission. Hmm. It is purposely designed. This, this distant retrograde orbit is purposely designed to stress the envelope of the spacecraft in terms of communication, deep space communication, in terms of thermal, in terms of propulsion. Uh, and, and it will be a real challenge. But if we pull it off, and, and we have every intention of pulling this thing off, It'll put us on an, on the great path to fly astronauts on the very next mission to the moon. What an incredible, my gosh, what an incredible mission. I mean, I'm, I was getting excited just listening to all of these different milestones when you're talking about, you know, that burn to get uh, into the orbit of the moon. And, and you talked about that that moment of being the farthest away um, from from the from the Earth. Uh, th th these are all going to be very big moments, I think, for everyone. And I love that you described the, you know, what, not only as you, you defined these four primary objectives, testing the heat shield, um, the, the v demonstrating the vehicle in flight, recovering the, sp the spacecraft, and then, of course, the bonus objectives. But uh, you mentioned that you're taking really everything to the limit. You're, you're pushing the, the vehicle um, to really test that this thing is going to be ready for humans to get on board. Yes. I mean, it, it's, it is by choice and by design a, a stress test. And that's, that's why we're doing it without a crew on board. Um, we've done a lot of work on the ground to make sure we're ready for this. We've done thermal vacuum testing. We've done end-to-end -end software testing. We, we are coming up on the Green Run Hot Fire, uh, which is going to be a full hot fire of the core stage in the four RS-25 engines. We've hot fired the boosters out in the desert in Utah. We've done all the piece parts, but we haven't done it all together. And when you pull it together, sometimes you learn things uh, that uh, you need to adjust moving forward. And and that's that's our objective here is is to really make sure that there's there's not something that we missed, but also to check our engineering, check our math, and to make sure that we really do understand what we're getting ourselves into before we fly astronauts on the on the next flight. Now, one of the items that you brought up was in the very beginning when you were going over this mission profile, is you talked about a pretty wide range of mission duration. I think that what you said was. 25, any, anywhere between 25 and 42 days. That's quite a spread. So 
Why is it that way for a mission to the moon? Yeah, you have to remember for lunar flights, we have a three-body problem. We've got the Earth, we got the moon going about the Earth, and then we got our spacecraft. And, and the moon going about the Earth is in its lunar cycle. It's it's 28-day, 29-day lunar cycle. And as the moon goes about the Earth and the Earth is rotating below it because it's spinning on its axis, the lighting conditions at our chosen landing site, which is in the Pacific Ocean, vary depending on the day that we launch. So we have more lighting on some days and less lighting on others. And we need to take that into account as, as we set up for a specific launch attempt. And when we initially looked at our mission design for Artemis One, we quickly learned that our launch availability was only about a week per month. So about five to seven days out of a 30-day period, we, we had launch availability for what we call a short class mission, which is about 25 and a half days. So if we were to just launch and, and land 25 and a half days later and have lighting at the landing site to support the recovery operation and to support the flight test objectives that we need to get with imagery as, as the vehicle comes in and it, it deploys its parachute and splashes down, we only had, again, five to seven days. But we have an amazing team of engineers and mission designers, and what they quickly came up with was an augmentation plan where we add an additional couple of days, or in this case, a week and a half to two weeks to the mission. And what that does is it changes the position of the moon about the Earth such that if we launch on that, launch on that day and we spend a little bit longer period of time about the moon, up to two weeks now, so that we have a 42-ish day mission, we can get lighting at the landing site. So by varying the mission duration and supporting the test objectives that need lighting for imagery purposes at the landing site, we can get our mission availability within a given month up to about half the month, somewhere between like 14 and 16 days a month. So we went from five to seven days a month where we could launch to 14 to 16 days a month if we have variable mission duration. So it was a clever solution from a mission design standpoint. And and I, I'm, I'm always amazed at the, at the capability of, of our team coming up with creative solutions. Yeah, giving, giving yourselves more options, very, very cool. So where are you, Mike, during the uh, during the mission? Where, what are you going to be doing through all these different phases? So is the is the mission management team chair? Uh, we go through the flight readiness review process, and then we get handed the keys uh, to the mission, and we are located at the center of the operation. So the center of the operation prior to launch is at the Kennedy Space Center. So I'm, I'm physically in the launch control center, sitting in the in what we affectionately call the mission management team bubble. Um, it's it's an enclosed area for privacy reasons in firing room one, and it's co-located with our our launch operations team. And as they go through their decision gates, uh, you know I'll I'll be listening to them on the loops, and they will tee up any risk acceptance decisions or decision gates to me. And I'll pull the team, and I'll be within eyesight of the, those folks. And if we need to talk, we can step aside and talk. 
and I'll be able to look out the window at, at the Launch Complex 39 where our rocket sits and and follow along. So so having a high situational awareness for the for that critical decision making time frame is key. So I'll be at the Kennedy Space Center, and then once we launch uh, and commit Orion to a lunar trajectory, I'll relocate to the Johnson Space Center in Houston for the duration of the mission, uh, all the way up through splashdown and handover to the recovery team. Um, I, ideally, I'd like to be on the recovery ship, but the best information is not on the recovery ship. The, the spacecraft telemetry goes to our, our critical node or our hub in Houston, and it is not sent to the recovery ship. So uh, actually the best place for me to be is uh, in Houston all the way up uh, from from flight day two through the end of the mission. That's uh, th- that does make sense, and you know that's where the operations uh, for for missions even today. That's that's where they're they're based out of. You talked about on the pad on pad thirty or the uh, launch complex thirty nine. I know thirty nine A. That's where their SpaceX is, has been uh, taken off uh, recently with a lot of their commercial crew missions. Uh, where where is uh, the SLS going to take off. Yeah, the Space Launch uh, System and Orion will take off of uh, Space Launch Complex 39B, which is which is adjacent to it right there. It's just a little bit farther north. Cool. Uh, and uh, we we used both 39A and 39B in the shuttle program, and under our uh, commercial crew program and our commercial cargo program. Uh, 39A has has been leased to SpaceX, and they've been doing a fantastic job providing crew and cargo services there. And and we're going to operate off the adjacent pad, which has been uh, renovated and refurbished uh, for Artemis missions, and and it's undergone significant modification. They they completely replaced the flame trench. They redid the pad surface. Uh, they tore down the old shuttle launch tower uh, that that we no longer need because we have a clean pad configuration. And now we take our launch tower with us from the vehicle assembly building out to the pad, similar to what Apollo did. We actually have a mobile launcher. Uh, that that uh, that baby weighs about 11 million pounds, and that, it's it's a feat of engineering in itself. I've, I've been on it several times and in it, and um, it, it's, it's amazing if you ever get a chance to see it. Very, very cool. Now, when you were going through the mission profile, Mike, you you talked about this is going to be a challenging mission, and you talked about really pushing the envelope here. So when it comes to Artemis One, what are those primary risks, those primary challenges that we're going to have to face uh, to complete the mission? Yeah, our primary challenges and, and risk drivers are familiar to a lot of spaceflight programs. Micrometeoroid and orbital debris is by far our primary risk driver. Um, Artemis flights, though, are a little bit unique to low Earth compared to low Earth orbit. When you look at the micrometeoroid and orbital debris environment in low Earth orbit, it's largely dominated by man-made orbital debris. But once you get past the the Earth's primary gravitational field in, in geosynchronous orbit, the environment is dominated by micrometeoroids. And we're going to spend the bulk of our mission in the micrometeorite-dominant environment. Um, so that's our primary risk driver. We also need to fly, as I mentioned earlier, outside the Earth's magnetic field. And what that does is it 
coax us through the Van Allen radiation belts to get to the moon and then on our way back to Earth. And that's a high radiation environment where there are uh, concentrations of particles, uh, radiation particles, that could uh, overcome some of our avionics and electronics, and, and we've built in fault tolerance for that very thing and some redundancy for that very thing, uh, but, but that is a risk driver as well. And then we have a whole host of what I'll call first flight risks, like the brand new heat shield design on, on the spacecraft, which, yeah. is our, which is our primary objective because we cannot demonstrate it on the ground. Um, it's the first flight of the Space Launch System rocket, and the, the launch with the five-segment solid rocket boosters, uh, it's, it's first flight of the core stage and the four RS-25 engines, and it's the first use of the mobile launcher and, and the modified Launch Complex 39B. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of first flight elements there. Some of those were already, from a risk standpoint, bought down through EFT-1, like the separation events of the of the parachute system on the Orion spacecraft and and recovery operations, we've we've done a good job of buying those down. But but there are some things that you know we've tested them to the extent possible we can on the ground. We've analyzed them to the extent possible, but uh, we're not going to fully understand or appreciate it until we get into the flight. And and if we do have problems along the way, we do have aborts available to us as well as alternate missions. And alternate missions, it's not a full abort. It's just uh, we'll go as high and as far as we can go, and we'll accomplish as many of the objectives as we can. Some of those include downloading from a, a distant retrograde orbit to a free return trajectory or fly a high Earth orbit instead of uh, you know a low Earth orbit or just coming home. So we've got a whole host of um, options available to us should we need those. And as we talked earlier, we have uh, predefined knockoff criteria and off-ramps that, that we've been working hard to pre-plan, and uh, our teams are off training right now. Very good. Now, now Artemis 1, you, you talk about pushing the envelope, and, and, and you're right. You know that you can't really call it like a proven capability, a proven heat shield, proven rocket until you actually prove it on, on, the, uh, on Artemis 1. Now, going past that to Artemis 2... What changes? Let's say, you know, we, we met all these mission objectives on Artemis 1. What changes for, for an Artemis 2 crewed mission? Well, we had the human element. That's, that's the biggest change as, <laughs> well as, as well as the crewed systems. And we're all about human spaceflight. That's, that's why I'm here, to fly humans in space. And, you know, flying hardware and flight testing hardware and, and testing software, it's it's exciting. It's good work, but we're unique in that we're a human spaceflight program, and we're going to lunar destinations and beyond. So when we add that human element, it it changes things. You you have additional risks that you need need to consider. You gotta you gotta make sure that the astronauts um, have a a safe and healthy environment that they can exercise that the that the that the uh, waste management system or the space toilets working, you know, those kind of things matter in in the context of a human spaceflight mission. That in in a robotic mission or an uncrewed flight test really don't enter into the equation. That's uh, really really important stuff, right? I mean, is there any uh, 
human, you talked about some bonus objectives on uh, on Artemis One. Is there any any bonus objective that's looking at maybe some element of uh, the human, uh, whether it's uh, life support systems or or just something, some capability that's going to make sure that whenever we do fly humans on Artemis Two, that it is that it is human ready. Yes. So on Artemis Two, we are testing again the life support systems, the exercise equipment, the food systems, mm. the waste management systems on the ground to the extent possible, and as well as using the International Space Station as a test bed for things like the waste management system and some radiation monitoring equipment uh, to ensure that our astronauts are, are healthy, uh, both during the mission, but also uh, from over the course of their lifetime from chronic health effects in developing the medical protocol with our flight surgeons and the flight docs. And they, they've spent a considerable effort and in, in time and expertise uh, has been built up in those areas. But a few things that are unique about Artemis II that we intend to accomplish um, include doing a full in, in the space environment checkout of the life support system before we ever commit to a lunar trajectory. So hmm. on, the, on the first day of the mission, we're going we're gonna to launch, we're going to get our, well, we're going to get our crew suited up, we're going to send them out to the pad. They're going to they're gonna climb on the top of this 322-foot-tall rocket that's been fueled and, and is waiting for them, and then they're going to launch. And on the first orbit, uh, the, the space launch system will deliver them to this point where we'll enter what's called a high-Earth orbit. And the high-Earth orbit is purposefully designed as a, as a waiting period of about two days. It's a 42-hour orbit period. It's highly elliptical. And it's going to send the crew 59,000 nautical miles from Earth before they come back and decide whether to commit to the moon on a translunar injection maneuver. And during that 42-hour period, we're going to we're going to do two pretty unique things. One is we're going to we're going to dedicate that two-day-long period to checking out the life support system. So it, there's this thing called an amine swing bed. And, we're, and it has three different three different uh, beds in it, each of which is capable of removing carbon dioxide and humidity from the atmosphere, uh, and and maintaining a healthy uh, atmospheric environment. We're going to check out all three of those swing beds, and we're going to do it under peak metabolic loading as well as um, the lowest metabolic loading. And the way that we'll do that is we'll have the crew exercise on that two-day orbit, and when they exercise, they increase their metabolic rate and they, they exhale the highest amount of um, water vapor and carbon dioxide, and we'll have the crew awake and exercise back-to-back, -back, and that'll be our peak metabolic loading on our life support system. Hmm. And then we'll go to the lowest point when they go to sleep, and their heart rate is the lowest, and their, their breathing uh, and the water vapor and the carbon dioxide is the lowest. And we'll watch that amine swing bed and the life support system do its job under these extreme conditions before we ever send them to the moon. We'll have done it on the ground before, but we'll do it in space as well, just to, just to be double sure. The other thing that we're going to do on Artemis II in that, in that two-day orbit is we'll do a proximity operations demonstration, also known as a ProxOps demo. And we're going to use the upper stage of the Space Launch System rocket 
is our Proxops target. So whenever we rendezvous with an object, before we dock with it, there's a period called proximity operations, which is not far field. I, I can't even see the object yet. It's, it's near field. It's in view, and I haven't physically made it to it yet. So we're in that near field proximity operations time frame. We'll separate the Orion spacecraft from the upper stage. It'll go into effectively, the, the, the upper stage will effectively go into a dormant state, and the astronauts will, will separate out about a football field length away, about 300 feet. They'll turn Orion around, and they'll be looking at it out the, out the windows and out the, out the centerline camera, and they'll approach it as if they were approaching for a docking through a series of braking gates, and they'll come up to about 250 feet and slow down and brake, and then they'll come into about 100 feet and they'll slow down and brake, and then they'll come up to about 30 feet away from that, that dormant upper stage. And then they'll do a handling qualities demonstration. They'll actually get the fly, the Orion spacecraft, relative to something else in space as if they were going to dock manually. And, and they'll assess the overall performance of the spacecraft. And when they're ready and before the, the upper stage becomes active again about, about during about, about, about a two-hour period, they'll back Orion away and then they'll turn and separate and the upper stage will go its way. It'll be disposed of in, in the Atlantic Ocean. And Orion will come around at the end of that two-day period, and we'll have this handling qualities demonstration through the Proxops demo. We've checked out our life support system. And then we'll send our astronauts on the way to the moon on a free return trajectory through a uh, mission continuation burn. And we'll fire up Orion's service module main engine and uh, send our, our astronauts on a four, four-and-a-half-day-long journey out to the moon. And when they get to the far side of the moon, our, our Artemis generation, as they swing around the moon, will we'll get their first Earthrise moment. It'll be the first one since the, the 1970s where our astronauts will, will witness Earthrise um, from behind the moon. And, and that'll be a moment that I think will, will be shared uh, globally, I hope, uh, on, on, that, on that flight with that crew. But the biggest moment for me is always on, on human spaceflight missions, getting your crew home safely. And that, that is the thing that I look forward to the most. Uh, flight testing hardware is great. Launching is great. But physically shaking the hands of the astronauts after they've come back and you accomplish the mission, that has by far been the highlight of my career. And I, I, I can't wait to do it again on Artemis II um, when, when we get our crew, crew back after that one. That's going to be a big moment, Mike, uh, getting, getting astronauts returning from, from the far side of the moon, entering into a lunar orbit. Now this all sets up for eventual boots on the moon, right? So how are, how are Artemis I and II getting us ready for that moment, boots on the moon once again? I think we've talked about kind of at the macro perspective <clears throat> through through our prior discussion. It's it's really getting our teams ready, getting our launch team, our flight team, our our recovery team ready to to accomplish that job for more complex missions. It's it's a classic build up approach where you build up uh, incrementally complexity and capability while simultaneously buying down risk as you go across each of these mission phases. 
we're also checking out our spacecraft and we're also checking out our, our rocket and our ground systems and our space network and our deep space network and our mission control center and our launch control center and our, and our engineering teams. We're also checking our engineering and our math on this and making sure that our models are correct and that our, that our uh, uncertainties are, are what we think they are. And, and we're going to double-check our work. We're going to have lessons learned along the way, and we're going to do it better every single mission. And, and that's how we're going to prepare for Boots on the Moon on Artemis three. So it's coming up pretty soon, Mike. Um, you know, where where 2021 is going to be a, a big year for for these next steps for getting humans to that point, right? Boots on the moon, first uh, first woman and next man. What do we have to look forward to to prepare for the next for the first Artemis mission? What's coming up? It's going to be fast paced. the 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 coming days and weeks, uh, it's a steady cadence of activities in. As I mentioned earlier, our, our launch teams, our flight teams, our recovery teams, our engineering teams are actively training for the mission. The mission management team will will join some of those uh, integrated simulations where we'll simulate mission phases and those key decision points. We're also preparing final preparations for our flight hardware at the Kennedy Space Center. We will we'll get into integrated assembly of the rocket. And, and the spacecraft, we're gonna we're gonna stack all of the boosters. We've already started stacking the boosters at the Kennedy Space Center. We will finish stacking the boosters. The core stage will arrive from the test site at, at the Stennis Space Center in Mississippi, and it'll be offloaded from a barge, and it'll enter the vehicle assembly building. And the 212 foot long core stage will be lifted and put into place and assembled as part of the core core element of the propulsion system on the rocket. We've already uh, built the uh, the upper stage, the interim crowd propulsion stage, and uh, we need to stack that on top of the, the space launch system rocket. And then our Orion spacecraft is ready. It's at the Kennedy Space Center, and it will be stacked on top of the, the rocket as well. Uh, we'll go through a series of what I'll call non-recurring tests. They're, they won't be done every single um, mission because this is the first build and we need to gain additional understanding of the structural modes. So we'll do integrated modal test in the vehicle assembly building. We'll do some dedicated systems checks that um, are unique to this first build in the vehicle assembly building. And then we're gonna roll it all out to the launch pad on the mobile launcher. And and that's gonna be a moment that um, I, I don't think folks will appreciate until it happens. Seeing the the over 30 story tall rocket with the spacecraft sitting on it rolling toward the launch pad for a wet dress rehearsal uh, just about um, about two months before we fly and and fully loading it with uh, the full cryo load of liquid hydrogen liquid oxygen on the launch pad demonstrating our ability to, to fuel the rocket and detank should we need to do that and then rolling it back to the vehicle assembly building uh, for some final readiness checks, uh, and then we'll go through our flight readiness review process. And that that is a thorough wire brushing of are we ready to fly? Is the design certified? Are all the teams ready? Is 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 the ground system ready? Is the launch vehicle ready? Is the spacecraft ready? We will ask all those questions to ourselves, and then we'll 
decide whether or not to accept the risk. And when we're ready and we're, we understand what risk we're getting ourselves into, that's when we're ready for the mission. So there's, there's a lot of stuff ahead of us. There's, there's probably 10,000 items to be worked out. And we've got a great team that's off working it right now. And uh, it's all going to come to a head here in, in mid to late 21. And I can't wait for it. What an exciting time, Mike. And, and it's, all, it's all for, you know, returning to the moon, first, first woman, next man. But then, but then the idea here is set up for a sustained presence on the moon, right? We're not just returning, touching, going, and, and coming back. There's, there's a lot of value to what we want to accomplish on the moon. And we'll end with this, Mike. To you, why do you think it's important to return to the moon and, and continue exploring uh, the lunar surface? Yeah, re- returning to the moon, it's it's more than planting a flag or, or a specific objective. It is it is literally testing yourself and, and testing your nation's ability and and testing the best and the brightest that you've got out there. And leaders are always testing themselves. Great leaders are always testing themselves and leaders are always on the frontier and the moon and beyond, that's the frontier, and we want to be on the frontier. So by going there, we're going we're gonna to learn stuff. We're going we're gonna to learn what we're capable of. We're going to learn scientific uh, evidence about the history of the Earth and, and the history of the universe. And we're just going to learn about ourselves. We're going we're gonna to learn about what it's like to be a human experiencing that. And We've got a few of those folks around from the Apollo generation, and, and we're going to have a few more. And, and that's, that's exciting to, to know that somebody's going to be around to tell you what it was like to fly by the moon or land on the moon and, and to share more than a picture or share more than telemetry data with the ground. They're going to they're gonna tell us a story. They're going to tell us what it felt like. They're going to tell us what they experienced and every single one of the Apollo astronauts that I've ever had the opportunity to talk to, they were a changed person from, from their experience flying to the moon. And we're going to have more of that. That's, that's exciting. And we're going to build partnerships. We're going to build partnerships with the commercial industry and we're going to build partnerships with our, our international uh, friends and colleagues and, and that kind of stuff, you, you never know what rewards those are going to reap over time. And uh, it, it's, it's not something you can really put a finger on it or, or put a dollar value on, but there's real value there. And, and that's why we should go, and that's why we should go sustainably. Engaging the world and, and sharing such a unique and incredible experience, it's all, it's all coming up here real soon. Mike Serafin, beautiful words. What a great way to end. Thanks so much for for going through all the intricate details here of of these upcoming Artemis missions. Um, you know, just just thinking through every every moment of the mission. It's just you, we use the word exciting a lot today, but but it is just that. It's it's very it's a very exciting time, and it's something that we can engage in very very soon. Mike Serafin, thanks again for coming on. Thank you. It's, it's a real honor and privilege to be a part of such a talented team. Thank you. Houston, go ahead. Roger, zero J, and I feel fine. Settle head clear the tower.
Hey, thanks for sticking around. I was talking with Mike a little bit after uh, this podcast, and uh, just we, we were both sharing our excitement for for what's coming up. And I told him I was saying this is definitely going to be one of those ep- episodes that I'll, I think people are going to reference quite a bit. If you if you listen to the whole thing, you know Mike went into a lot of detail about the upcoming Artemis missions. So if you're ever curious about whenever these, these uh, missions start coming up, if you're ever curious about what exactly is going to happen, just reference this episode and uh, Mike will, will go ahead and walk you through it. I definitely learned something today. I hope you did as well. You can find us and other NASA podcasts at nasa.gov slash podcast. This episode Episode is going to be part of our Artemis collection. You can either search us on any of your uh, search engines that you that you prefer. Houston, we have a podcast. Houston, we have a podcast. Artemis episodes. There it is. Uh, we also have a collection on our homepage. Um, just just search Houston. We have a podcast, and, and it'll be easy for you to find. You can engage with us. We're on the uh, NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Engage with us by using the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform uh, to submit an idea for the show or ask a question. Just make sure to mention that it's for us at Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on December 15th, 2020. Thanks again to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norm Moran, Belinda Polito, Jennifer Hernandez, Beth Weisinger, and Catherine Hamilton. Thanks again, a big thanks to Mike Serafin for taking the time to come on the show and for helping me to write a lot of this episode. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.